invite you to take a copy of the scripture and either turn or swipe your way to John chapter 10, which is where we are at in our ongoing study of John's gospel to us. God's word to us, this uh, Greco-Roman biography of Jesus, written by Jesus' best friend here on earth, so that we would know what Jesus was like, that we would know who he is. And I'm going to repeat a few of the verses that we read together last week, and then read uh, to the end of chapter 10. Uh, And so I'm going to begin at chapter 10, verse 22. So there's a copy, there is a a red Bible in in the pew rack in front of you, feel free to grab that. Um, or swipe there on your app if you're reading the Bible on your phone or device. So let's read God's word together this morning. John chapter 10, verse 22. Then Jesus, then came the feast of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple area, was in the temple area walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews gathered around him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me. But you don't believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you... A mere man claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If you called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said I am God's son. Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. When Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days, Here he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a miraculous sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. This is God's word to us this morning. Now, I have the incredible privilege um, most weeks of uh, diving into a uh, passage of Scripture and trying to engage with the complexity of that uh, text, trying to engage with the, the complexity of what uh, the text is saying, um, and to find treasure there, and then to come out from that complexity and present that treasure in an understandable uh, 
way. Now, this book that we have been walking through, John's Gospel, is an incredibly complex book. And there's many weeks where I'm just kind of in the middle of the week, um, really lost in the complexity of the text. It's a great place to be. And in many ways, it's sometimes scary. John's book is incredibly complex. There's layers upon layers. There's themes. There's, um, there's structures. Um, all that need uh, to be uh, engaged with uh, to, in order to present the Scripture in a, in a way that's true to, um, to God's intent for it. You know, one author has said that John's gospel is shallow enough that a child may swim in it, and yet deep enough that an elephant can swim as well, that a child can wade in, but an elephant can swim. It's simple. It's, there's, there's, a, a, there's a simplicity to the language of John's gospel, and yet there's a complexity to and a depth of meaning to what John is saying. And so this passage that we've read together this morning is an, is a, an especially complex one. And so really what I've decided to, to zone in on here is, is the question, and what's really helped me this week is, what is the issue of this text? What is the issue, the number one thing, the thing that is really driving this text forward? Why does John include this? And I think it's this. It's the question, or it's the, it's the truth of who Jesus really is, his identity, who he really is, and then what he makes possible because of who he is. Who Jesus really is, and then what he makes possible because of his identity. We're in a, we're in a section of John's gospel where, where John is dealing with or um, he's, he's giving us um, really insights and uh, episodes into the life of Jesus that happened at four uh, different Jewish feasts. And so the, the first was, um, the first feast, feast would be the Sabbath, this weekly uh, seventh day of the week where the Jews pause. It's not a feast per se, and yet it's this Jewish institution of the Sabbath. And so um, John is giving us Jesus' um, interaction with the Jews in and around the Sabbath. That's in chapter 5 and and then again in chapter 9. And it's usually around Jesus healing someone on the Sabbath day. And so they're accusing him of working on the Sabbath, of breaking the Sabbath. Second feast would be the Feast of Passover, where um, in uh, chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I know you, we're celebrating Passover, we're, we're killing the Passover lamb, and we're eating unleavened bread, and he says, I am the bread of life. In cha- and that's in chapter 6. In chapters um, really 7 through the first half of chapter 10, he, this, we're, we're given this insight into Jesus' interaction at the Feast of Tabernacles, which... Um, at the Feast of Tabernacles, you'll recall there was this giant candelabras that would, would, would set um, these huge fires that uh, were um, representative of the glory, the presence of God, the Shekinah glory that filled the tabernacle, that filled Solomon's temple, but tragically was absent in this second temple. That as the people of God instituted and, and as they 
built this this temple, God's glory, God's Shekinah glory, didn't come into the Holy of Holies. And so the people in the Feast of Tabernacles, they would, they would light these giant candelabras and, that would actually give light to the whole city on the Temple Mount. There was a glow over the city of Jerusalem. And, and as he approached the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, it was a, a, a real somber moment in the nation of Israel because they were going to extinguish the, the, the candelabras. And, um, and it, it, it just reinforces the truth that, yes, God's Shekinah glory hasn't come down. God's glory, His presence hasn't come down into this temple. And it's in that context that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. I'm the true glory of God come to lead us out of darkness. And it's in that, te- in that context, he says, I'm the good shepherd. I am the door of the sh- to the sheep pen. I am the way back to God. I've come to lead us back out of darkness. Now, we read here in verse 22 that the fourth feast, he's at the feast of dedication, where, the, where this res- second half of John chapter 10 is taking place. Now, of uh, the of the four feasts, the Sabbath, the t- Passover, the Tabernacles, and the Dedication, the Feast of Dedication is the only one that's not actually authorized by the Hebrew Scriptures. So God hasn't instituted the Feast of Dedication um, in the Old Testament. The story behind the Feast of Dedication goes back about 200 years before the time of Jesus. In uh, the year 167 BC, an emperor from Syria, his name was Antiochus Epiphanes, he was extending his power, he was uh, extending the empire of Syria, and he overtook uh, Jerusalem, he overtook Israel. And part of his uh, centralizing of power, part of his extending of his uh, domain, was that he instituted a uniformity of, re- of religion. He says, we're, we're, we're not going to have all kinds of different religions in my empire. We're going to have one uh, worship. And so he built, um, and he, he decided that we are going to worship the Greek gods. Uh, we're gonna, that's, that's the religion. That's the state religion. That's what we're going to do. And so actually in the temple in Jerusalem, he built an altar to the Greek god Zeus, which... If you're familiar with the scriptures, if you're familiar with the Hebrew people, that this is incredibly offensive to them. This is incredibly demeaning. This is incredibly shocking that uh, the that this empire, emperor would build an altar to the Greek god Zeus in Yahweh's temple. And so they're, they're outraged. And so there's really a grassroots rebellion that takes place, an uprising. And in the revolution, a hero emerged. His name was Judas Maccabeus. Maccabeus, Judas the Hammer, right? That's awesome, Judas the Hammer. And in 164 BC, Judas led that revolution, and he laid down the hammer on the Syrian emperor, and they actually took back uh, the temple. And they rededicated the temple to God on the 25th day of Kislev, of the month of Kislev, which is in and around are December, so in and around December 25th. And they celebrated uh, for eight days that the temple had been taken back, that they have break, broken down this altar to Zeus, and so now they have reinstituted the, the Jewish uh, sacrifices to Yahweh in the temple. He celebrated for eight days, and Judas says, hey, let's do this every year. And so thus began an eight-day celebration 
of rededicating of the temple where they would light a a new candle in their homes every day for eight days. So that's the story of Hanukkah. And so it's at this feast that Jesus comes. This is um, in the uh, beginning at the 25th of December of of Kislev. um, And just four months before Passover where Jesus uh, would give his life as a sacrifice. And so the clock is ticking towards that last Passover, towards the next time that Jesus would be in Jerusalem, which is um, at that Passover where he would give his life. The clock is ticking and he knows it. He knows that his hour is coming. That's one of those phrases that's repeated throughout John's gospel is his hour. Some translations say Jesus will refer to my time. He's really literally saying my hour. My hour, of this is my finest hour. This is my, my greatest hour. And it's the hour, he's talking about the hour of his death. He knows that his hour is coming. And so he is purposefully walking and teaching and inviting people to believe. And so as we read in verse 24, people come up and say, How long are you going to keep us in suspense? Who are you? Tell us clearly and plainly, are you the Christ? Which is, the, Christ isn't Jesus' last name, right? We, we don't have Mary Christ, Joseph Christ, and Jesus Christ. We, Christ is um, Jesus' Uh, title. Messiah is the Hebrew word. It's Jesus. Are you, are you the Messiah? Are you that promised king, that shepherd king that's been promised throughout the Hebrew scriptures, throughout the Old Testament? Are you the promised deliverer who's going to come and, and fight Israel's battles for her? Are you the one who's going to come to set your people free? Are you that promised one? Are you the promised one? Who are you? Tell us Clearly, you see, this question over the identity of Jesus is the question that dominates all the conversation surrounding him. As Jesus, as we read in John's Gospel, as he's engaging with all kinds of people, the dominating question is, who is he? Is he, in fact, the Messiah? Or do we look for another? The question is in the air all around him. As an example, if you turn over to John chapter 7, John chapter 7, 25, at that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? But we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he's from. Down to verse 31. Still many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? And then down in verse 40 of, ch- of chapter 7, on hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet, which is referring to the prophet that was promised to Moses, that God would send a prophet like Moses, and even greater than Moses. Others said, he is the Christ. Still others asked, how can Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. And so this is really representative of the dominant conversation surrounding the person of Jesus as he, as he was teaching, as he was performing miracles. And it's interesting, the only time that Jesus explicitly and very clearly says, yes, I am the Messiah, is to a woman at a well in Samaria in John chapter 4, right? The, the, the woman at the well. She talks about the Messiah, and he says, yeah, I'm, I'm him. 
says it really clearly and plainly. That's, that's me, that promised one who's to come. Yeah, it is me. So why, why is Jesus a little coy about this? Why doesn't he just come out and respond to their question here and say, uh, yep, I am. He said it to the Samaritan woman. Why doesn't he do it here? Well, the reason is that there were too many political and military connotations in the popular opinion of what the Messiah would come to do uh, of the people. And so um, he wasn't explicit in saying, yes, I am the Messiah in a very public sense. And yet he says, I already told you, right? You see that in, in John chapter 10. They said, tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? And he says, I did tell you, but you didn't believe. He says, I did tell you. You see, all of his words and his deeds, his actions have been pointing in that direction, that he is indeed the Messiah, that he is, in fact, the promised deliverer. And so he can truthfully say, I did tell you. All of his teaching has been saying that is in, has been leading up to that, that I am the living water. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the, the good shepherd. Before Abraham was, I am he's publicly teaching at all of the jewish feasts in the capital city of jerusalem and so when jesus is arrested and and charged with blasphemy he could rightfully say he says i was teaching publicly you heard me you heard me i was not teaching in secret all of his teaching and his deeds his actions his miracles Recall, if you've been with us throughout this series, that John's in many ways organized this gospel around seven signs that Jesus performs. The first of those signs was in chapter 2, where Jesus is at the wedding in the town of Cana, and they they run out of wine. And so Jesus fills up these ceremonial um, washing pots that were were set apart for, for religious rituals and purposes. And he fills them with water, 40 gallons apiece, or 80 gallons apiece, and he turns them with his word into wine. And John pauses in John chapter 2, and he says, this was the first of the signs that Jesus performed, and his disciples put their faith in him. And then at the end of John's gospel, John writes that, you know, I could have written many more things that Jesus did and said, but he says there is many more signs throughout John's gospel, throughout Jesus' life, sorry, there are many more signs I could have written about. And we can read about them in Matthew and Mark and Luke. He says, but these signs, these ones are written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. And so John is, is, is saying, you know, and, and Jesus is saying that I've been demonstrating um, with my works these miraculous signs. And he says that here in John chapter 10. He says, which of these miraculous signs? are They're demonstrating the Father's heart. They're demonstrating the Father's purpose. They're demonstrating that I and the Father are one. They're demonstrating that they're showing you my glory. They're showing you who I am. Who else can raise a paralyzed man? Who else can heal a man who's been born blind? Who else can turn water into wine? Who else can feed 5,000 people with a couple of fish burgers? He says, that's who I am. It's all, they're all demonstrating my glory. They're demonstrating my power. They're demonstrating my grace. They're demonstrating my identity as to who I am and what I've come to do. And so I have been telling you, I have been showing you, plainly that i am the christ i am the messiah i am that promised one who is to come and i am here and so there's sign after sign after sign speaking of the deity of jesus and actually we're right here before the greatest sign 
His next chapter is John chapter 11. We're going to start there next week where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, the ultimate sign, power over death, which is a foreshadowing of of Jesus' own resurrection, which is what ultimately, fully, definitively defines who Jesus is, exposes that he is the Christ, that he is God incarnate, he is the Savior of the world, that he could predict his own death and say, I will rise again in three days, and he does it. Someone can do that, he's worth listening to, right? And so we're, we're right here before the greatest sign. And the sign that, as we see, as we'll go through John chapter 11, the sign that really seals his fate, that the, as the religious leaders see what he's done, as he raises a man who's been dead in the grave for several days, they say, yeah, we have to kill this guy. We have to kill him. So Jesus is saying again and again, my teaching, my actions, how I've lived, what I've said, miracles I've done have all been clearly showing you. I've been telling you, I am the Christ. And he he highlights here in this passage his special relationship with the Father. He highlights his special relationship with the Father. And we know that that's significant because twice in this passage, um, the response of the people to him talking about his relationship with the Father is that they want to kill him. So when you say something and the response of people is that, like, we want to kill you, you know what they've said is significant. I think that's a, that's a, um, that's a principle for living. So, you know, in th- we, that we saw that in verse 30, 31, and then again in verse 37, that the people wanted to stone him, and then they wanted to arrest him for the purpose of killing him. He makes, in this passage, he makes eight statements about his relationship with the Father. Look at them with me. Verse 25. He says, um, the miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me. He's saying, the miracles, the signs that I'm performing, I'm doing, are displaying the Father's will. Verse 29, my Father, who has given them, his sheep, his people, to me, is greater uh, than all. Uh, He says, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. He says, so he's saying, the Father and I have the shared purpose. And in fact, if you look closely at the, the grammar there in, in those verses, 20, 28 and 29, he says, uh, I give them et- eternal life. They shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So apparently being in Jesus' hand and being in the Father's hand is being in the same place. Notice that? They have the shared purpose. It says, I and the Father are one. Verse 32, it says, um, I've shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? There's a unity of action. The miracles I've done, they're actually from the Father. Verse 36, whom the Father set apart as his very own. What about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? The Father has sent me. We have a unity of mission. Verse 37, don't believe unless I do what my Father does. But if I do it, even though you don't believe me, believe the miracles, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So there's this unity of will that Jesus is in the Father. The Father is in him. It says all, the summary of all of that, right? Is verse 30. I and the Father are 
one. Now, not, not one in the sense that they are the same person, right? We know that John had, has a distinction between Jesus and the Father. We know it right from the very beginning of the book, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. So there's this distinction between the Word and God, and yet the Word is God. He's talking about his oneness, oneness in will, oneness in purpose, oneness in action, oneness ultimately of being. That there is an essential unity between the Father and the Son, an inseparable union between the Father and the Son. It's in their very essence. And so Jesus is making this profound claim that he is indeed fully God. We know that the people, that's how the people took it. They're saying, you're making yourself God. You're making yourself equal with God. You're claiming to be God, they say in verse 33. And so uh, Don Carson, in his commentary on John's Gospel, writes that the Jews had come and asked for a plain statement that would clarify whether or not he was the Messiah. He says, he gave them far more. He gave them far more. than He is not only just the Messiah. He is one with the Father. He has this incredible... Uh, oneness with God the Father. And the response is that they want to stone him, right? Which is the punishment for blasphemy. The punish, punishment for making yourself equal with God is we are going to kill you and we don't want to touch you because you're unclean. So we'll use some rocks and we'll stone you. And Jesus says, hey guys, wait a minute, wait a minute. Well, for which of the good deeds, or which of the miracles are you going to stone me? And they, their response is, is, is priceless. He says, um, verse 33, We're not stoning you for your works, for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. You are just a man, and you're claiming to be God. You're making yourself out. Some translations say, you're just a man, and you're making yourself God. When, in fact, Jesus did the very opposite of that. He was very God, and he made himself man. He was fully God, and he made himself man. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, John chapter 1 says. And so Jesus kind of engages with them, and, and he really, um, in, in what's really a hard passage, he's quoting a psalm written by Asaph. It says, it's not written in your law. I've said your God's. If you called them gods to whom the word of God came, the scripture cannot be broken. Just a little insight into Jesus' view of the scripture. Uh, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said I am God's son. So Jesus is trying to engage them intellectually. He's engaging with them on common ground on the scripture, the Old Testament scripture. And he's saying, you know, um, in the Psalms, the Asaph Psalm, Psalm 86, he says... Um, that these judges are called gods. And so um, even some, uh, some people have godlike functions. And so um, why is it blasphemy that I would say I'm God's son? And so he's trying to engage them uh, with that. And really, it's exposing the futile attempts that they are, are making to arrest and kill him. Because again, his not his, it's not his hour. And so Jesus, really, in this passage, is calling on these people. He's inviting these people to revise their view, not only of who the Messiah is, 
to not only revise their view of the Messiah as not only being a political and a military victor, and not only being a, 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 a nationalistic hero, he's saying, no, the Messiah is so much more. He's a deliverer from our bondage. He's, he is one with the Father. He is very God in the flesh. Come to rescue us out, to demonstrate the glory of God, to demonstrate the grace of God, to demonstrate the heart of God towards his people, to forgive sin and to lead you out and to, to form a people. So their vision of God must be expanded. And so all that he will accomplish really does depend on him being fully God. And so this, the, the point of this passage is, is focusing in on the identity of Jesus. Who is he? And what has he made possible? Verse 36 says that he was sent by the Father. He was sent to do something. We know this, John 3.16, right? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever would believe on him would have eternal life. He came to rescue his people out of death and destruction to life, to a life that can't be snatched away. Right? To a life that can't be snatched away. He says, if you're in my hand, my father will lose none of them. If you're in my hand, you're in a place of security. Our security rests not in our hold of God, but on his hold of us. And so therefore, Jesus can say, I will lose none of them. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. Bishop Ryle, J.C. Ryle writes, Christ declares that his people will never perish. Weak as they are, they will all be saved. Not one of them will be lost. If they err, they will be brought back. If they fall, they will be raised up. The enemies of their souls may be strong and mighty, but their Savior is mightier still. Who can separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble? No. Shall hardship? No. Shall persecution? No. Shall famine? No. Shall nakedness or danger or sword? No. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm convinced, Paul writes, that neither death or life, not angels or demons, not the present or the future, not any powers, nor height or depth, anything in all of creation, including your foolish self, will be able to separate us from the love of God. That's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This makes Jesus' identity as the Messiah, as the good shepherd who's given his life for the sheep, as the one who's one with the Father, who is God's chosen servant, come to be, give his life as a sacrifice for many after living the life we should have lived. Makes possible this great confidence that nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from God's love for us. And so what is this passage calling for from you today? It's calling for belief. John has written this gospel that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He says, I've written this. The reason I've written this is so that you would believe and that by believing you'd have life, that you'd have abundant life, that you'd have a fullness of life so that you would receive life from him. That's how, that's how this that segues to, uh, this, the, John's gospel segues to the death of Lazarus. Then Jesus went across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. Here he stayed and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a miraculous sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. 
God's inviting you to believe in Jesus today. Did you hear him speaking to you? You don't have to understand everything. You don't have to have all your questions figured out. You don't have to have all your doubts answered definitively before you believe in him. Do you hear him speaking to you today? You can turn to him today and respond to him today. Maybe, maybe you're like, maybe you, what wells up in you when I say he's, he's inviting you to believe, you're like, yeah, yeah, I did that. I believed in Jesus. I prayed a prayer. I walked an aisle as a kid or I prayed a prayer with my mom and invited Jesus into my heart. I raised my hand or, I, you know, and you, and you look back and you're looking. And when I say invite you to believe in Jesus, you're looking back to a moment in time where you believed in Jesus. The invitation for you today is in the present, in the now, in today, to believe in Jesus and not to be content with an initial faith, with an initial belief in Jesus. The scriptures are clear. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. But there is a rich and full life of ever-deepening faith in Jesus. There is a life that is full and rich of ever-deepening belief in all who Jesus is. And so my, my hope for you today, whoever you are, whether you've never believed in Jesus and you got all kinds of doubts and we're glad you're here, or whether you believed in him 50 years ago, or you look back to a moment when you were six years old, you believed in him, or when you were 14 or 18 or sometime in the past, my heart cry for you is that your heart cry would be, I want more. I want more. I want to know him more. I want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and share in his suffering and be made like him. I want more friendship with Jesus. I want more communication with Jesus. I want more love for Jesus. I want a greater experience of the fullness of his grace in my life. I want, him, I want to experience him changing me more and more as I receive his great love that is, has nothing to do with what I deserve. And as I receive that love, as I receive a status as an adopted son or daughter of the king, as I receive all that he's done for me, that my heart would be changed and that I would become a person who's full of love for others. I would become a person who's full of joy, that I'd become a person of, of compassionate generosity. I'd become a person of hospitality, that I'd become a person of justice and mercy for the weak in this world. I want to be changed more and more as I worship this God. I want to enjoy him more. I want to enjoy him more and more and more. I want to be done with coasting. I want to be done with um, drifting. I want to follow him. I want to experience him. I want him more and more and more. Friends, in him, the scriptures say, in him dwells all the fullness of God. And so there is an ever-deepening experience of God's great love. That infinitely deep love between the Father and the Son that's eternal, that's infinite, that's perfect. You're meant to be drawn into that. And you're meant to be changed by that in an ever-deepening way. So that's my prayer for you. That's my hope for you. That you would believe, that, that you would read in this passage, you read in, the, the, in all the complexity of what, what it's saying about who Jesus is. 
what he's come to accomplish and the security that he offers, that it would spark in you belief. And that belief for you is not some past experience, but it's an ongoing present reality of trusting in Jesus and staking your very life on him and being changed by him. Would you pray?